The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, if you can hear my voice, you can find your way back to your seat, please, and uh, please grab your Bible, if you would. If you need a Bible, there's plenty of Bibles in the seats next to you. Just grab one of those. You can keep that for yourself, if you'd like. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10, and we're going to read the chapter together, just 25 verses. After I'm finished reading, I invite you with me to give thanks to the Lord for his word. Jeremiah writes, chapter 10, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldfish. Goldsmith, not goldfish. Hello. (laughs) That would be a miracle. They are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mists rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from its storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, 
For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, Truly this is an affliction, and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone out from me, and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again, and no one to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid, and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a liar of jackals. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed give thanks to you for your word. We know, God, that it is infallible, inspired and inerrant, and so we seek this morning simply to study and turn our attention to it so that we may know you and know what you have for us this very moment. We trust you, for your word is good, and that there is indeed none like you. Help us and challenge us, convict us now by your word. And in our minds, may by the Spirit they be illuminated to the truth of the word. And by your Spirit, again, may we be encouraged and equipped to walk faithfully in light of your word. Help us, O Lord, in this endeavor now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who spend... uh, considerable amount of time traveling in foreign countries, one of the most common side effects of spending time there is that you'll begin to absorb and pick up on the cultural idiosyncrasies of the day. So if you spend months or even years outside of the country, you may begin to pick up on some of the inflections of the speech in another country or begin to absorb some of the customs around time and community in those other countries. This is the natural part of travel and exploration. This is, in fact, a good and beautiful thing that explores our horizons about what life is like beyond our little walls here in Fredericksburg. In fact, when Brittany and I lived in Iceland for the short amount of time that it was, one of the notable things that began to happen to me was I would mirror the inflection of their English accents. Now, my Icelandic was terrible, but I began to speak English the way they spoke English, but not with the accent, just with the inflection. For instance, when they ask questions, their inflection does not normally go up like ours does, like, are you really going to go there? But down instead. And I began to ask my questions with a downward inflection, and Brittany began to notice that, and of course, ridiculed me for it. (laughs) 
But you don't have to leave the house or go to another country to begin to absorb and reflect some of these changes. Over the pandemic, parents began to notice that their children began to, in some ways, speak in an English accent because they began to mirror some of the words and inflections of a certain pink pig on British television. I noticed this even in my own household over the extended exposure because of the pandemic and being stuck inside. The point is this, that we cannot but help be influenced by the things around us and that there is nothing which is purely neutral. We may say that some things are good and some things are bad, and indeed, some things may not have a large or outdue influence on our lives in the long run, like our inflections or our attitude towards certain things in culture. But nothing is actually neutral. From your music, to your shows, to the people you surround yourself, to the societal issues that you choose to engage with, to the problems you see and the answers that are offered, there is no neutral ground when it comes to our lives. The only thing that we can do is either choose to be passive and allow those things to influence us without our knowledge or be proactive and discern how we are being affected by these things. Again, the, the stakes may be very low. The biggest change from living in a different culture may simply just be the way you speak. But it may also be the way you view and think about the sanctity of life the way you think about the importance of education, about spiritual issues, about societal and cultural issues at play. We are, of course, ultimately made for worshiping God. And the central problem in Jeremiah chapter 10 is an issue of worship. Namely, as you might have guessed, the right and proper object of worship. Judah was worshiping false gods, what the Bible calls idols. And God is the only one, so Jeremiah says, who is worthy of worship. And so there's a fundamental problem. God's covenant people were not faithfully worshiping God. They have rejected Him for their own gods and the gods of nations that surround them. Now, let me define a few things. I want to define first worship and idol so that you and I are on the same page as we work through the rest of the sermon together. Worship can be explained in three ways, all beginning with the letter A. You're welcome, I'm a Baptist preacher. The first thing that worship is, is the mind's attention. What your mind is constantly gravitating to. The fixation of your mind's attention determines and displays in part the object of your worship. The second aspect is the heart's affection. That which captures the affection of your heart, your desires, your loves, which pulls you in the direction. That's worship. And third, the mind's attention, the heart's affection, and the soul's allegiance. Ultimately, that which demands your commitment and priorities, which you give yourselves to. When we talk about worship, we mean that which you give yourself to, your mind's attention, your heart's affections, and your soul's allegiance is what we ultimately worship. Now, it doesn't mean that you have no other thoughts in your minds except what you worship, 
or no other allegiances in your life except that which you worship, or no other affections in your heart except that which you worship, but that the ultimate controlling affection or the ultimate controlling allegiance or mind's attention is the object of your worship. Or to put it another way, it's not that you can have no other affections, no other attentions, and no other allegiances, but that ultimately what you worship means that you can have no other competing affections, no other competing allegiances, and no other competing focuses of attention. So, brothers and sisters, you're free to love one another with affection. And it would not be indeed worshipful for you to do that. But that which holds the greatest place and prominence in your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and your soul's allegiance is, biblically speaking, what you worship. But you, friends, are made to worship, and every one of us worships something. It is not a matter of if you worship, but what you worship, or who, as well as a matter of how you worship. What happens, though, when we worship that which was not made to be worshipped? That which dominates your mind's attention, heart's affections, and soul's allegiance, which is not worthy of it. Well, that is what the Bible describes as an idol. And an idol simply is that controlling, dominant presence, which is the focus or the object of your worship. And it is anything that is not God that takes that place. So anything that has a greater place of prominence in your life and your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and your soul's allegiance that is not God who alone is worthy is what the Bible says is an idol. Now here in Jeremiah 10, an idol is something that is tangible. It's, it's made literally out of wood. It's carved out of stone. It can be dressed up and bowed down to. But an idol need not be a physical thing. You know this. An idol can be anything that is good that is made ultimate. It's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, becomes an idol. So when we think about worship, what we're really talking about is what you and I were created to do, being given and practiced and participated in among things that are not worthy of that worship, that falls far short of worthy of our soul and dedicated attention, affection, and allegiance. There are many good things which we give our lives to over the course of this world, but there is only one thing which is ultimately worthy of the highest allegiance, the highest affection, and the highest contemplation. And it is God alone. So the question for you and I is not whether or not we have idols, because we do. In fact, I would turn your attention to John's first sermon in 1 John a few months back about how he explained how we can look for idols in our lives and how you can tell what is an idol. It's not simply that whether or not we have idols, but how we recognize them and then reorient ourselves back to God. How we say, this is an idol in my life, I want to cast it down so that I can then be in worship to the true God, not these false idols or false gods. That's the question before us, and that's, that's the bread and butter of the Christian life. Recognizing, identifying, and casting away these idols and temptation that is competing for worship, competing for attention, competing for allegiance, so that all of that can be rightly given to God. Because the problem is you and I are corrupt by nature. 
Because we are made for worship, we seek things to worship. That may be ourselves as we consider our own reflection in the mirror, our own advancement and good causes, our own comfort and security, or it could be another person that we have made so central to our lives we couldn't imagine living without them. It could be something so important to us, like our nationality or our allegiance to some cause, that our whole identity is wrapped up in this. How do we reorient ourselves away from that which unrighteously and unworthily has gained these worshipful intentions back to God so that we can live in right and proper worship with Him? This is what Jeremiah 10 helps us to do. To recognize that we cannot simply passively allow the currents of culture in this world and even the temptations of our own heart to wash over us because it is leading us to worship that which is not God. We must listen attentively to the word of God as he calls us to himself that we would step in right worship, proper worship, according to his word of the only worthy one. That We would worship God. So idols need not be small totems that we create out of earth, but these things we recognize in our own heart which has captured our worship which need to be cast down. And we must return again, every one of us, to worship God according to His Word as God. The way we're going to do this this morning is look first at the first 16 verses of this chapter. There's a comparison that Jeremiah makes between God, the true God, and idols, these false idols. You may have seen the dialogue go back and forth. These idols are like this, but God is like this. We're going to explore that contrast a little bit. And then we're going to end in 17 through 25 by, by looking at Jeremiah's plea for God's mercy in a path forward and examine a few exhortations from the text. Let's first examine what idols are like in Judah. We can sum up idols in one word. That word is false. At the end of the day, all idols are false. Whether we call them gods, or we call them causes, or we call them nationalities, or we call them whatever, idols, in a word, are false. Look at verse 14. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. Why? What is shameful about these things? What makes a man lack knowledge? Because the idols he worships and the images he creates are false and there is no breath in them. Idols are false. They are not true. We can say that means they are not real. Not that there are no real idols, those false objects of our worship, but that they are not real entities. What we ascribe to them does not truly exist. There is only one God, and there are no other gods. When the Bible speaks about gods in the plural, they're always speaking about what the cultures tend to worship as gods. But the Bible affirms and asserts over and over again that there are no other gods. This is why Paul can say later in the book of Romans that you can eat meat sacrificed to idols because you and I know there are no real idols. They're nothing. And yet for the sake of conscience, men do ascribe very real but false deities to those things. So idols, in a word, are false. The images, the things they represent don't actually exist, but they do hold a very real place and sway over those 
who have falsely ascribed deity to them. There are a few things to note about these kinds of idols there in Judah. First, notice where they come from. Look in verse 2. The command is to learn not the way of nations, nor be dismayed or in awe of the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. What was happening was there was a lot of a lot of hubbub about the astrological signs and things going on, and there was a worship, an astrological worship in the nations around them. And so they would make up all sorts of gods to explain what they were seeing, despite the fact that there was a very clear answer. As Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim His handiwork. They fashioned a God after their own image to explain what they were looking at, and they bowed down and worshipped that God. They would create little images of this God and worship it and bow down to it. And Israel comes along and looks around at these idols and says, Yeah, I I think I'll worship that. That makes sense. I, I certainly can't explain this I see in the sky. Even though I know God's word tells me he created it, it's much more tangible to hold this totem in my hand or to bow down, or it fulfills my flesh to perform these kinds of outward rituals to those gods. I want to be like these nations. So the source, the infection, comes from not inside where God's word was meant to dwell, but from outside, the corrupting influence of these nations excited the sin and the idolatry which is born out of our hearts. Israel began to worship these false gods. They were stolen, or better, they were co-opted by Judah, by Israel, as they bowed down to the other God. In fact, look at the word that it says. They they were learning to worship. They were learning. They were going to school, seeking to understand the who, what, and the why behind these false idols so that they can worship them according to pagan religion. In fact, the close word associated with learn is what we call disciple those students of religion, of pagan idolatry, became disciples of false gods. And so they were stolen and co-opted and, and learned by other nations, from other nations, adopted and made their own. There was a bit of a synchronism going on. They, they still tried to worship God. We saw in previous chapters that they would go to the temple. They would offer some sacrifices and they would claim because they did this or because they worshiped and they prayed that they were protected from God's wrath and judgment. And God very clearly says through Jeremiah, that's not happening. You can't come here and say this and then go and do that and expect to not be punished. It is these idolatry and the learning from other nations that ultimately will be their downfall. So these idols have been co-opted and learned from other nations. Secondly, we learn about these idols that they were dressed up to deceive and to accentuate what is actually dead. They were meant to speak to the senses so that they could overwhelm the senses and excite the worship so that you wouldn't be clued in to what's actually happening here. You're kissing a rock or you're worshiping a tree. Look at what it says in verse 3, at the second part of verse 3. It says that the tree would be cut down from the forest and then worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. Now this, this is a, a skilled craftsman. It says that these people were skilled in their work. They decorated it with gold and silver. 
And they would fasten it with hammer and nail so that it couldn't move. It looked impressive. Look in verse 8. This wood in verse 9 would be beaten with silver. It's brought from Tarshish and this special place where refined gold and silver would come from. And they would be adorned with this outward and external beauty. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple, a very rich and rare color in that day. They are all the work of skilled men. Why would, why would these worshipers need to do this? Well, there are indeed impressive and beautiful rocks to be found and trees to sit under. But imagine, if you would, that you take a rock and you adorn it with gold. You bring it into a place which is more ornate than your typical dwelling places. There's incense burning, and there's a mood and atmosphere created by others. And now, all of a sudden, that which was a piece of mineral hardened over time becomes, in your mind, something worthy of worship. What else would be worthy of such gold and such silver? What else would be worthy of such ritual? Why else would we be sacrificing children or offering ourselves in sacrifice and an offering to these gods? They truly must be impressive. And so these lame gods would be dressed so that they would impress and overwhelm the senses so that the wicked and idolatrous hearts of those who are inclined to do so would be none the wiser. Not only were they co-opted from other nations and then deceived in, in being impressive to others, but ultimately these idols are futile and they're useless. He calls them vanity in verse 3. The customs or the idols of the people are vanity. Or look in verse 5. He likens them to like scarecrows in a cucumber field that cannot speak and they have to be carried and put in their place for they cannot walk. Or again in verse 9, in verse 8, there are idols that are made of wood that are just simply dressed up. Or again later in the second part of 14 and 15, these images are false. There's no breath in them. They're worthless, verse 15 says. They're a work of delusion. What's happening here is that Jeremiah is being very clear. That which is impressive externally and which all the other nations seem to be excited about, is actually vanity, useless, no life, no breath. They can do nothing. Look at what it says again in verse 5. They can't speak or walk. You don't need to be afraid of them. There's no fear, namely reverence, that you should give to them. For they can do neither evil nor good. They're, they're nothing. They truly are nothing. So idols, we see, come in from other nations, excite the, the influences of our heart, which is tempted towards idolatry. They overwhelm our senses because they look impressive externally, but ultimately are empty, hollow, useless, and futile. Those are idols. But the contrast that Jeremiah makes over and over again is that God is not like these is very clearly near the end of verse 18 or verse 16. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. Not like these. God is altogether, in a word, true. 
If idols can be described in a word as false, then God in a word is true, perfectly true, completely true. He says it himself in verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, an everlasting king. This is the true God, the substantive God, the one that you, though, may not be able to see or touch, can be confirmed and convinced of his reality because he will make it and clearly reveal it to be so. God is true. Five things we see about God as an extension of his trueness. First, that God is truly great and truly mighty. Verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord, not like these other idols. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. This, this is, God is worthy because he is great, that he is above all. He is mighty, meaning his authority and his sovereignty enables him to crush all of his enemies. There is none like him in strength and in power. He is, we see, the one who created life, the heavens and the earth. And so it says in verse 11, Thus you shall say that the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens, because he who made the earth by his power and who established the world by his wisdom, and he did it by the understanding and the stretching out of his hands. This is the true God who is truly great and mighty. Secondly, we learn in verse 7 that God not only is great and mighty, but he is also truly wise. If these other gods, these false gods and idols, over and over again he calls stupid, God is not like that. God is wise. Who would not fear you, O God, King of the nations? For this is your due from among all the wise ones of the nations in all their kingdoms there is none like you. There's a lot of wise people out there, very smart and intellectual people. And even in the course of human events, when those wise people can put their wisdom all together, their wisdom cannot even begin to amount to the wisdom, the infinite wisdom of God. God is truly wise, infinitely wise, whose wisdom goes beyond all wisdom that you and I could ever comprehend. Not only is God great and mighty and truly wise, but we see in verse 10, again, that he is truly alive. He is called the living God, the everlasting King. God is true. He is the living God and the everlasting King. He is truly alive in two senses. One, we see that he is the source of all life. When he says that he is the living God, he doesn't simply mean that God is alive in the same way that you and I are alive but that God is the source of all life, and from God springs all life. We read this morning that from Him we have our movement and our being. God is the living God, the source of all life. But secondly, we see that He is eternal. He is everlasting. He was never created, but has always existed. He cannot be put out but will always powerfully and eternally exist. That's what it means to be eternal. No beginning and no end, from everlasting to everlasting. God is eternal. Not only is he a source of all life, but he has lived forever 
and always will. God is truly great and mighty, is truly wise and truly alive. In verse 11 and 13, he is also truly sovereign. It speaks of how he utters his voice. There's a tumult of waters, this great storm. He makes the mist rise. He brings forth lightning and thunder from the wind and the storehouses. Sovereign over all things. He created the earth. He fulfilled all of his promises according to his word. He gives all things that need life exactly what requires it. He is sovereign over the universe. We are told that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is truly sovereign. And lastly, in verse 16, we see that God is truly a personal God. This is perhaps the most striking and the most different than all of the other gods. That this God is a personal God. Meaning that he actually enters into a relationship with his people. He doesn't sit like some austere judge from afar, accepting your worship, but remaining distant and cold. He enters into a very real relationship. The Bible calls that relationship a covenant. He enters into covenant with his people, first through Abraham and Moses, but now through Christ. He forms a very real relationship with his people because he is a personal God. Notice what it says. Not like these, in verse 16, is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. What says here, the portion of Jacob would have been very important to, to Israel. Because portion there is the, is the kind of the land that would have been allotted to them as they entered into the promised land. And yet there was a tribe that was not allotted a portion of the land. you know who the tribe was? The tribe of Levi. Those were the, the priestly lineage. And it said that they were not given a portion of the land because God would be their portion. And so you see, read in the Psalms, that the psalmists and the worshipers would say, God, you are my portion. Meaning, what else could I ever want or need? Not land, not food, not water. God is my portion. He is the portion of Jacob. But notice, Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. God has created and reserved a people for himself. And so this is a personal God who enters into a very real relationship with those whom he has created. He is, says, the one who formed all things and then brings them into relationship with him. There is no other God in any other world religion that has a personal relationship to the level of the God of the Bible. You know this? No other God. There are many other gods that are posited in other world religions, and some of them share similar attributes to the God of the Bible. Sovereign, even personal, able to respond and answer. There are gods who are wise and infinite. But there is no God who is the exact combination of all the beauties and perfections that the Bible speaks of, except this one there is none like him, it says. Truly great and mighty, truly wise, truly alive, truly sovereign, and truly personal. You see why this is so important to have a right understanding of who God is? Lest you be tempted to sway towards idolatry? That those who, who compete for the personal relationship, affection, and allegiance of your souls, of your heart, of your mind, that once your affection cannot hold a candle to the perfections of God. 
But if you are ignorant and unknowledgeable about who God is and about those perfections, how much more alluring might those other idols be then? When you neglect the study of God's word and you refuse to contemplate in gratitude and thankfulness for who God is, the temptations of the world and the currents of the world will begin to sweep you away. This is why Peter will say later in the New Testament that you must fix your eyes on the gospel. For this is the only true source which anchors us to the reality of who God is in Christ. That he became a man and entered into not just our world, but into a very meaningful, real, and sacrificial relationship for us where he gives all that we have nothing might receive all. So God is not like these other idols. The issue, of course, is that Judah followed after false gods. And so we see in the second half of this chapter, Jeremiah's prayer and lament that they would turn from their ways and be restored by God's mercy. What we can take ultimately from this is that those who follow after idols ultimately will become like their idols. You see the link between the stupidity and the foolishness of the idols and what then Jeremiah and God says, the stupidity and the foolishness of those who follow after them? It is in verse 21, the shepherds who are stupid. He's not speaking of idols anymore, is he? The shepherds are stupid. Why? Not because they worship idols, but because they do not inquire of the Lord and therefore have not prospered. The idols they worship are actually a symptom of the fact that they have not inquired of the Lord. They have become like that which they worship. Or to put it another way, you become like what you love. You become like what you love. That which holds your mind's attention, your heart's affection, your soul's allegiance will have the most influence on shaping who you are. It's true even in our own relationships. The ones who have the powerful and most influential part of your life are those who are closest to you. Perhaps your parents, your siblings, close friends. You become like that which you love. You are what you worship, in other words. And so we see here, like in verse 21 and elsewhere, that judgment then is the just consequence of the foolish religion and idolatry. This rejection of God and this chasing after false gods to the satisfaction and gratification of their own flesh means that they are becoming foolish and stupid and useless, just like the one they worship. And so God, the true and living God, exercises judgment upon them. Verses 20 through 22 is this picture of the wrath of God that comes against those who follow after God, who reject God, and have ultimately become like that which they worship. What is the prayer? The prayer and the call then is for Judah to do two things. First, they must make a humble confession. They must make a humble confession. In verse 23 and 24, Jeremiah prays, Oh, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger lest you bring me to nothing. The prayer here is that God would so humble the, the idolatrous heart
over their sin and idolatry, that they may be corrected, not in anger, lest they be judged. judged, judged. Fully understand that they must be disciplined for their actions, but they don't want God's anger, they want His grace. The prayer that Jeremiah says is, Lord, would you hear our confession? In other words, man must restore to God the seat of primacy in his affections and in his attention and in his soul's allegiance to look to God and say, no more will I give all of my affection to this person or to that God or to this cause, but to you and you alone will have the highest seat of affection in my heart. Time and attention to this thing or to that thing or to that cause or to this idol, but you, O Lord, will direct all of my steps in all of my ways. I will not dwell on the things that are below, but on the things that are above. We must restore to God the seat of primacy in our minds, hearts, and souls. But secondly, we see the necessity that God must tear down the idols in our lives. This is how we're restored to God. Those who worship idols in whatever form we may have made them must not only confess humbly before God, but also must tear down those idols lest they remain up. This was part of the problem in the reform under Josiah. In other words, that they would fake this reform, that they would tear down some of the places, and yet some of the high places would remain up. Remember from the Old Testament. And it would, because those remained and not all of them were taken down, little by little Israel returned to idolatry. And so every idol must be torn down in humility before God. Man must allow God to destroy the sources of our idols. And this is why, again, he prays in verse 25, Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not. Notice we started with nations where the idolatry crept in. Now he prays, Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name. This is a prayer that they would not be the recipient of God's wrath, that they would turn, and that those who introduced idolatry would be Condemned, For they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him. And they are the ones who have laid waste his habitation. The sources of idols must be destroyed at the root. And it is God who must destroy them. You and I can go into our gardens and yank weeds all day. And yet somehow they keep coming back. What we recognize is despite our efforts... The weed of idolatry can only be fully eradicated by a work of God. And though we should and we must work, and God gives us His Spirit to enable us to work, it is God alone which produces the fruit of righteous and pure worship. What are some exhortations that we can consider as we end? Three, from the text. The first exhortation is to learn not the way of the nations, verse 2. That was what he started with. Learn not the way of the nations. This is a simple call to use from the culture around them. What does darkness to lead us in the light? The light himself has come. We must look to Christ, the Son of God, who has taken on flesh, who has dwelt among us. He
he who is the light of the world. Not to the nations which dwell in darkness. Learn not the way of nations. Ask yourself, where do our idols come from? It is true, of course, as Calvin had says, that our hearts are like idol factories, constantly producing one after the other. But if our hearts are predisposed to worship false gods, or ourself, the falsest of all gods, where does the opportunity to worship those things come from? Well, if we're paying attention, we see that they're coming from all over the place. Remember, nothing is neutral. There is nothing which is not vying or competing in some way for your attention, affection, and allegiance. So ask yourself, what are the false gods that are competing for your worship today? What are the nation or the culture or the society or the group or the people that are teaching you to become a disciple of their idolatry? The exhortation is do not learn from the nations. Do not follow the nations. Sit not in the seat of scoffers nor walk in the way of sinners or stand in the way of sinners. Learn not the way of the nations. So how and where are we giving an audience to the undue influence of these false gods? They're clamoring for our attention. They're in our schools. They're in our government. They're even in our churches. They're in the music we listen to, the shows we watch. They're in the conversations we hear and overhear. They're in all sorts of things. And it's not that we can remove ourselves from the world. Then we would really be useless but that we must be not of the world, Jesus says. And so we don't want to go around with a hammer and destroy everything that looks or smells, something that's not explicitly Christian. If a song doesn't mention Jesus, you may need to listen to it. In fact, some of them might be better than the ones that do. The idea here, of course, is that we must not learn or become disciples of the world. We are disciples of Jesus. He teaches us the way, not the nation's. Friends, be diligent and examine the things that go into your life, into your mind, into your hearts, into your soul, so that you would not then learn and become disciples or students of it. Paul will say, do not become drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness is not simply that which you drink from strong alcohol, but the idea is to be filled with the Spirit is to not be drunk on the ways of the world. Learn not the way of the nations. Second exhortation he says in verse 5, the second part of verse 5, do not be afraid of these false gods. They can't speak, they can't walk. Do not be afraid of them. There's no fear before these gods. A fear in the Bible is reverence, not simply terror, although there's an element of that, certainly before the real, true, and living God. But do not be afraid of them. Friends, as you plant yourself firmly in the way of Christ and firmly in the way of the Word, you can look at these idols in their face and you can take them down. They are nothing but wood and stone, false ideologies and cultural misconceptions. You do not need to fear them or revere them. The wisest among men who claim to be a deity is not worthy of your worship but of your pity. Do not be afraid of these. In fact, grow in confidence in the way of the living God by allowing the truth of God's word 
to expose the foolish falsehood of the idols in this life. You know that you can study the Bible to become aware of the kind of idols that are presenting themselves to you for your worship, and you can pick them out, expose them, and destroy them. Parents, this is your job for your children, for they have no sense of discernment about what they hear or listen. If you gave them free reign, they'd watch anything and everything that tickled their fancy in the moment. It is our job as parents to discern for them what they are watching so that they may grow in confidence of what is true, not what is false. We help them see in the world these cultural ideologies that tells us your happiness is the most important thing. That you can become whatever you want to become, even if you need a surgery to do it. That at the end of the day, you are the most important and nothing else. This is everywhere from our children's music, to the movies, to their school, Even at times, we teach our children this. When we're not paying attention, when we model for them that the most important thing in our life is how much money in our bank account or the morals we set in place. It's better to be nice than godly. So let's not simply attack the worldly here, but also the moralistic and the hypocritical. So learn not from the way of the nations, And do not be afraid of them, but rather allow yourself and establish yourself in the truth of God's word so that you can find, identify, and expose the foolish falsehood of the idols in our lives. Last exhortation, verse 24, correct your worship. Correct your worship. The prayer is, correct me, O Lord. Have you prayed a prayer like this recently? Correct me? uh, Forgive me constantly. Correct me? Not so much. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice and not in anger. Friends, do you know God indeed has a purpose in a particular way? He desires you worship Him? In fact, there are several books out there that ask that very question. Does God care how we worship? I want you to read the book, but the short answer is yes. (laughs) Correct your worship according to God's Word. Do you know that you're here not because you need to worship God. I trust as Christians you will worship God every other day of the week. But that we gather here so that we can form ourselves around the right worship of God. That we reorient ourselves and we correct ourselves from the misalignments that happened during the week. From the impulses and the other worship of the week. What's been called the other cultural liturgies, the worship houses out there, are met by the biblical liturgies in here. It is why we pray. It's why we sing. It's why we read. It's why we hear and listen. It's why we take the Lord's Supper. It's why we remind each other over and over again that this God who we meet with in here is greater and not like any of the gods we meet with out there. Correct your worship, friends. According to the Word of God, habituate and rehearse the truth of God in worship in the form of community and commitment. Come to church, not because it's the box you check to get to heaven, but because in the community, your worship is formed according to God's word. And commit yourself to the ways of God. For if you commit yourself to submitting to his word, you will worship God in spirit and truth on Monday through Saturday. When you correct your worship, when you align it with God's word, you do not stray like Israel did, but you are brought into submission and alignment so that you walk faithfully with God. At the end of the day, Christ has come, and his life 
was lived, and his death was died, so that you, friends, would have full pardon and assurance from your sin and idolatry and be welcomed to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that you may worship God truly and rightly, free from idolatry and sin, that that which you were created to do most, worship and glorify God forever, you can now do in the freedom and the conscience of faith. So if you learn not the way of nations, and you are not afraid to expose and condemn these idols, and you worship according to God's word, friends, then we will walk in the light of the truth of the living God today. We worship Jesus because he has revealed himself to us, a personal and good God who has laid down his life that we may indeed not taste death. The wrath which is poured out on the nations and the idolaters is spared us because Christ suffered for us. Find your way back to the incomparable God by affirming his incomparability and worship Christ as the one true God who has become flesh, who died for your sins and was risen again on the third day so the church may be gathered and worship as we were created to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. We confess humbly and acknowledge our sinfulness and idolatry. As Calvin had said, our hearts are like factories which churn out idols. Forgive us, Lord, of our following after the way of the world. to you and to your word. Help us to not be afraid or to bow down and to worship these false idols, to not be in allegiance with the temples of the day, but come to the living temple, Jesus Christ, and come together as a community committed to the way of worship according to your word. Not that we may puff ourselves up with pride and arrogance that we are better than others, but in humility, that without your help and grace, we would fare no better. We ask, God, that you would continue to help us and lead us in the Spirit. As always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Oh, mm-hmm.